Okay, everybody come pray with me for a moment. Let's just, let's just focus for a moment. There are so many things that can happen in this life if we're not directed by the Holy Spirit. So let's, um, let's just refocus for a moment. Let's stop everything we're doing and pray and reconnect with God. Father, we thank you so much for giving us an open door to come into your presence. We thank you for this awesome worship that you've inspired today. We thank you, Lord, for just giving us your peace and your presence so that we can begin to understand better who you are. And I pray that this word that you've given me today, this study on the word, will be an harmonious embellishment to the worship that's already gone forth. And I pray that you will empower us today to receive your word, to receive your word and an understanding of how to receive you as our word through the word that you've given us in your Bible, that we may be nourished and filled and become your image in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the, that was a little hint. The study today is on the power of word, not just the word. Um, word doesn't mean too much to us in English. I mean, it means something that, that is written or something that is spoken. And we really don't have any other connotation to it much beyond that. So we're going to go back and way back into about 500 BC and start seeing some of the writings that came from the ancient Greek philosophers who were influenced by the Hebrew prophets and to see what kind of an understanding the first century Christians had when John wrote, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So what is this word? Um... John is introducing word as a person. It's the person of Jesus Christ. And I think in John 1, 1, at least I can speak for myself, this is the first time that I actually got a grasp of the word as the person of Jesus. And a lot of us started out the, the first book that we read in the Bible is often recommended is read the book of John. And I would send, I would send people right after the work, after the book of John. I'd send them right to Colossians one, so you can get a clear understanding of who he is. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to see what the word means and who the word is, and try to get an understanding today, a picture of what first century Christians saw when when they heard the word logos, Greek for word. Um, of course, we know that the person referred to as the word is Jesus Christ, the anointed one. Um, the Greek Christos was translated to Christ. Christos means the anointed one. Christos came from um, the Hebrew. What was the Hebrew word? Christos, the Messiah. I don't have the Hebrew word. Anyway, it came from Messiah, Mashiach. Uh, so the Hebrew Mashiach is pretty much an exact equivalent, or put it the other way around, that Logos 
is pretty much the equivalent of Messiah, Logos as the Christos, Christos the anointed one. Now, the term the anointed one was reserved for the kings of Israel, the high priest of Israel, and the prophets. No one else is referred to as having the anointing being upon them. The prophet had the anointing of God, and he was able to hear God's direct speech and give an exact, trans, an exact transcription of what the Lord had said. That's what the anointing was for. So when, when people refer to the coming Messiah, there is a tremendous anticipation of all that came with that because he was the anointed one. He was, he was governing authority. He was salvation. He was healing. He was everything rolled into one. That was the expectation in a world that was, was really messed up and unfair. <clears throat> Let's look at John 1.1 1, 1 in the parallel verses, parallel Bibles. Did any of you use a parallel Bible? Sometimes you can get more insight if you see how different translations and different versions, how they, how they either translate or transliterate the same word. So let's see of how much agreement we have between the different versions. The NIV, in the beginning, was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The ESV, English Standard Version, has become very popular internationally. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The King James Version, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The NASB, New American Standard Bible. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The New Living Translation is interesting. It emphasizes the preexistence of Christ, which is implied in the Word was. In the beginning was. So the New Living Translation gives us in modern English... In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the reason that's, that's an important clarification, because there's always debate amongst factions and secularists as to whether, whether Christ was preexistent. Jehovah's Witnesses uh, say no, but they don't line up with any historical context. It's just plucked from air. It's like one of those things you just make up and say it enough times with authority to get people to believe you. Um, so let's look at John 1.1 1, 1, and what does that really mean? The first verse of John establishes several important facts and it introduces Jesus as the Logos, the Word. Um, Christ is the Logos, which is the definition, the meaning the Word of God, and this is the first of John's seven names for Jesus, the word Logos. What is John getting at? The rest of the gospel is his attempt to prove, through to prove this through various forms of evidence, and most of that evidence is the miracles that Jesus performed. Well, if, <clears throat> if this evidence that John is bringing forth was to serve as evidence, it somehow had to have some relevance um, to the people. They had to have some form of context to accept that as evidence. So what's the basis of that? 
Um, also, John goes on in his first 18 verses, he's countering many false beliefs about God. These statements that John makes are all for a purpose. And it's very interesting because there was a lot of false information going around, a lot of pretenders in Jesus' time and after just as there are today. Um, the natural man is always trying to take preeminence and sit on the throne. It's only when we surrender to Christ that we can be transformed into his image and be who we're supposed to be and discover who our true identity is. Our identity is not something we can make up by looking around you and, and trying to conform to, to some group that looks like cool or that looks safe. Our identity is in Christ. And the more we surrender to him, the more unique our, our person and identity becomes. <clears throat> it seems counterintuitive looking at it from the natural. In the beginning establishes that the universe has a beginning. There are some that uh, think otherwise. Um, it also states that God has existed at least since that time. And later, later verses will show, in fact, that God created all that exists. So if he created all that exists, he obviously had to, um, he had to be around before that happened. <clears throat> um, the word was with God, and the word was God. That also makes it very clear that Logos, Jesus, is identical to the creator was with God, was God. He's identical to the creator. The word was God. From this, we begin to establish the concept of the Trinity, where God is one being in three distinct persons. Now, this concept of the Trinity gets a lot of flack from some people that they, they can't understand that. It's too confusing. They say, well, the Trinity's not in the Bible. Well, the concept of the Trinity has been around as long as the word of God. Long before Christ, there was a concept of this oneness of the different aspects of God. And so the Trinity, don't trip over a term like the Trinity just because it's not in the Bible. It's just kind of a helpful tool to give us, uh, to give us something to hang on to, an understanding. It's, it's us trying to understand a very difficult topic to understand because we're not God. We can't understand what an eternal being is that well. So we come up with terms like this. Um, <clears throat> the ancients had a very well established understanding as God being the one that encompasses all. So in early times, this concept of the Trinity, it wasn't hard to understand at all. Um, what does, the, what does the Greek word logos mean to us? Probably very little. It just it means word, right? Translated as word. Um, again, this is just a tool. Our translation is just a little tool for us that barely scratches the surface of meaning that first century Christians would have understood when they heard John say in the beginning was the logos, the word. Um, in New Testament, Logos always indicates the Messiah, <clears throat> Jesus Christ, the one who was predicted in the Old Testament. Everything's always going back 
to the predictions, the prophecies in the Old Testament. And it's not based on those predictions and prophecies, there was this living expectation that everybody had. Everybody was always wondering, when is the Messiah coming? Where's the Messiah? There was this expectation. Um, The concept of Logos evolved from the Old Testament prophets, came through the philosophers from ancient Greece, which have a tremendous effect on our thinking and our worldview today. It came through the Hellenistic Jews. It came through the church fathers. And finally, through modern theologians. Logos has many meanings which are interpreted according to context. Now, context includes audience, place, and narrative. Narrative, think continuity of story. It has to all relate. Logos can mean word, it can mean speech, it can mean matter, substance, it can mean a thing. Give me a command, it can be a message, an account, a reckoning, a settlement, respect, reason, and many more things. Logos appears 333 times in the New Testament. In its philosophical sense, from ancient times it represents the causing of something to be seen for what it is and the possibility of changing our position because of it. This was already known when the early Christians, early followers of Christ, heard in the beginning was the word, the image that conjures up is this thing, this capability of causing something to be seen for what it is. Okay, the word is going to reveal to us what really is, and it's a possibility of our changing our position from being sinners to be in right standing with God. That's what this ability to change our position is because people are always concerned about their position as far as righteousness. That's why they had animal sacrifices. Um, And some pagan cultures had human sacrifices. It's all about coming up with a way to reposition ourselves to be in right standing with the highest authority. The ancient... Greek philosophers, which seems kind of remote to us today, going back 2,500 years, they've had a strong influence on Western and Mid-Eastern philosophy for all that time. But I mean, how can they affect our advanced 21st century point of view? <clears throat> well, these philosophers, philosophers were not only celebrity, te- celebrity speakers, Think of celebrity speakers today that get paid hundreds of thousands, sometimes over a million dollars for speaking. These were celebrity speakers. They were the icons of their day. They were the teachers and the mentors of teachers of their time. Um, These philosophers had their own schools. They're published, and in some cases, their unpublished teachings still permeate our governmental, judicial, and social structures of today. They influenced Jewish society at the time of Jesus. Even more, why? Because they all spoke Greek. Greek was their common language. Um, 
from one language to another, there are different ways of thinking, different points of view. Translations are always lacking because you don't get the full connotation, the full meaning of a word. You have to kind of do workarounds, and you still, in many cases, you still don't quite get there. And word, logos, is one of those cases because logos has a much deeper meaning than just a word written or spoken. <clears throat> Let's look at how the ancient Greek philosophers, these are ancients, how they understood the term logos. Since around 500 BC, logos came to signify that which gives shape, form, or life to the material universe. What does that sound like? That which gives shape, form, or life to the material universe, that's creative power. It was understood as part of creation. Heraclitus used logos to distill all things into the one and then to show that the one is in all. In fact, Heraclitus spoke of the one as God who has the characters of the universal reason and the universal law imminent in all things. So the Greeks were into finding absolutes, and absolutes were associated with reason, very different from today. Universal reason and universal law referred to unchangeable principles. Now, we could look at that and say, well, God is unchangeable and nothing else. Heraclitus called these immutable, unchangeable principles logos. Unchangeable, absolutes point to God. He is the only person, place or thing, that cannot be changed. Everything else can be changed. Can clay change the potter? No. Can the potter change the clay? He can recast it, yes. Um, Plato was one of the greatest philosophers in history. Born in 428 BC, Plato thought that ideas exist in their own sphere, not just inside the thinker's head, but the idea exists in its own sphere, and the thinking person, the reasoning person, taps into that idea that is pre-existing. See the association with logos? That concept lines up with, I think, some things that we can relate to today. Um, I'm a musician, and at least I like to think of myself as one, and I, uh, I've got a gig coming up, so I have to start practicing again. But when, when musicians are, get together, like say, even you, you, you form a rock band, you form a garage band, you've got to spend time with each other and playing, and you're jamming, and as you're jamming, you start, it's like you're dialing in. You're dialing in to something that's there, and you all start hearing the same thing. What's actually happening, it's like you're tapping in to a melody that is outside of ourselves, and as each one of the group taps into it, then you can harmonize and embellish that melody together, and it works. It all fits, because you're tapping into something that is not just residing in the guy that started that rift. It's something each of you starts hearing. I can make a sports analogy similar to what's the key thing to being ahead of the game in sports? 
doesn't matter what it is, whether it's hockey, soccer, football, basketball, baseball, tennis, it's anticipating where the play is going. Wayne Gretzky was famous at hockey. Any of you go to, have any of you been to a hockey game? Is it kind of hard to follow the puck? I mean, I just kind of look at the floor, where did it go? I have to wait until I see somebody's punching another guy, then I know that's where the action is. But Wayne Gretzky was known to be able to anticipate where the play was going, so he was always there with his stick on the puck at the right time. And it's like, it's as if he was finding this this pre-existing flow and he was seeing it before it happened. So that's the concept that the Greek philosophers that Heraclitus was tapping into, and Plato. Plato also believed that the soul existed in a transcendental state, a spirit state, before its union with the body. And, I mean, we understand that because we've grown up with that principle, but this is where it came from. It came from the ancient Hebrews indirectly. Our, Our culture has been more influenced by the Greek the Hellenistic culture. Um, Plato also considered the logos as the basic fact of life because he believed there was a pre-existent something, that idea out there that's outside of ourselves, between the logos and a thinking soul and the logos of things. So there's something there between us and other substance that had its own existence. It had its own spirit. Um, they See, they're anticipating Christ. They're, they're reasoning through, through the reason they're anticipating Christ. They're being influenced by the ancient Hebrew prophets, whether they realize it or not. Aristotle was born 44 years after Plato in 384 BC. And to him, Logos represented reason. Now, he had a little different concept of reason than we do. And reason was considered sufficiently absolute to be the basis for all ethics. Imagine that. Ethics being based on an absolute. It's like we've been retrained today. We've been retrained today by situational ethics that say the end can justify the means. And what happens with politically correct thinking of today. If you don't like what a word means, you change its meaning. You redefine it. You just make it up. And then where does, what does reason have to do with that? Well, reason comes in to justify what you just made up to make it look like it's real. I mean, how far is that from Aristotle's concept of reason, where reason was an absolute. It was a basis for ethics because ethical behavior was considered something that everybody had and everybody could tap into because we're all tapping into that same pre-existent source of ethics, an absolute. What happens when we're just making something up and pretending it's real? I mean, that's... Vanity. Solomon called that vanity. Um, We're just exercising the fruit of our corrupted minds. 
How do we get our minds uncorrupted? How do we correct that DNA, so to speak? Well, through the Logos. Plotinus was another philosopher who became, he became popular long after his passing. The term Neoplatonism, which some of you may be familiar with, is a modern term derived from the philosophy of Plotinus, which was popular about 24 AD, after Christ, um, until about 269 AD. Neoplatonism is still active today in modern theology. It tries to describe a comprehensive philosophy that can satisfy all the spiritual aspirations of man by explaining the nature of the universe and by explaining how man can get salvation, which is to be restored to his original condition. That's how we think straight. That's how our reason is corrected, by being restored to our original condition. Is that something we can do on our own by ourselves? No. <clears throat> Unless you're a Buddhist, you don't think so. It's like um, having our corrupted DNA restored. That's something we all look forward to when we get our glorified bodies in heaven, when we're raised up. And there's a lot of scientists and medical researchers working on that concept today, how to restore our DNA. Old concepts alive and well today. Neoplatonism asserts the Logos has the power to control the world as perceived by our senses and intellect, the world that we see with our senses. Therefore, the Logos is a shaping power which lends form and life to things. Think, as Jesus showed us, Logos as the potter, potter forming the clay. And that sounds like a creation narrative. That's what the people understood when they heard Logos. It implied creation. And that's what the ancients understood it to be. Neoplatonism sees matter formed things as evil. Maybe not in the full sense of evil as we think of it, but as in lacking goodness. Why does matter lack goodness? Because the source of all being, the one with the power to create substance from nothing, is reality. Reality comes from being able to create something from nothing. And matter, which can create nothing from nothing, is nothing. That's what, that's what Platonism was deducing. Hermes considered that Logos means salvation because he believed that it was the role of Logos as a mediator, again, anticipating Christ. The Greek, did, you ever, did you ever have an idea that Greek philosophers are anticipating Christ? This is something we learn just from studying one word, Logos. It's not an ordinary word. Hermes also insisted that Logos means the son of Zeus, who in Greek mythology was the supreme deity. The Hermetic worldview developed the idea of an intermediary Logos in the concept of a father-son relation, the son being the essence of the father. That's how... 
That's how Hebrew thinking saw the Son as the essence of the Father. If you see the Son, you're seeing the Father. My parents used to be concerned when I was getting in trouble because it was a reflection upon them. And I go, <laughs> um, Hermes claimed that Logos is an image of God, that Logos, this pre-existent thing up here, is an image of God, and a man is an image of Logos, which is what happens when we accept Christ. We are reborn in his image. Philo was a great Jewish philosopher <clears throat> who lived in Alexandria, Egypt, and that was the first half of the first century B.C., um, say in the, in the 50 years before Christ was born. He produced a wealth of literature. He used the term logos often in his philosophy um, in ways that describe God the Father and Christ. Logos appeared 1,300 times in his writing. Philo tried to interpret Mosaic law in the light of Greek philosophy. Do you see the connection, how a person could do that? This is before the first advent of Christ, and he's searching for, he's searching for a historical continuity because history came from Israel. Then Israel was gone for a long time. There are, there are those hundreds of years of silence, and then the culture came through the Greeks into Mideastern and Western society. So Philo was looking for a continuity. Um, he thought that the Logos was the intermediate reality, an intermediary, the intermediate reality. Reality is an operative word because it means something that has to do with the creative power, the one that can create something from nothing, and who is essentially spirit. And he, so he's a mediator between spirit and the universe, which represents matter, the things that are created. According to Philo's thought, logos means the word by which God created the world. Have you read C.S. Lewis's The Lion, a Witch, and the Wardrobe or seen the, the, the video series maybe 20 years ago, 25, 30 years ago, it started coming out um, about Aslan, the lion, representing Jesus as the Lion of Judah. In, in the Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe, <clears throat> the, lion in the, the lion in the beginning is walking the earth, Aslan, the great lion, and he's singing the song of creation. And as he is singing, the trees and the animals and everything that is is springing up in the full color and full life. He turns his singing this way and everything is coming into existence. Um, that's the creative power of Logos. <clears throat> Philo's concept of Logos was used in many ways. And the term had many different functions. Logos had the creative power and the ruling power. This is what we want to understand here. Philo connected the creative power with the name Elohim, God. And that can be either singular or plural. And a ruling power with Lord, and Lord is the word that uh, Septuagint 
translates from the Hebrew Yahweh to Greek. Yahweh, Jehovah. Philo also associated Lagos with the first begotten son and a son of the uncreated father, the chief of the angels, the high priest of the cosmos, the man of God. You can see these terms that Jesus used. He's pulling, Jesus was pulling terms for himself that were already in existence that the people could relate to so they would immediately understand this is the Messiah. <clears throat> How about the Hebrew origins of Lagos? Dabar is one of several Hebrew words that comes semantically the closest to Lagos in both history, law, and prophecy and poetry. Um, Dabar has the Hebrew characters of power and authority. How does that apply to us? The word, the Lagos of God, was not abstract, but it was spoken and active. Dabar depicts communication between God and humanity, God's people. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and powerful. Some translations, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and attitudes of the heart, the thoughts and intents of the heart, the innermost thoughts of the heart, that's active. <clears throat> the bar was associated with the word of law and lordship imparted to the chosen people. The bar is the means of creation. As the word of law, it is the covenant commandment. So this whole body of understanding is what early Christian people were seeing when they saw the word Logos. Logos represented all those things. Paul the Apostle <clears throat> can give us a deeper understanding of Logos in his letter to the church of Colossae, Colossians 1. This is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. He is the image of the invisible God, speaking of Logos, Jesus, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning from the firstborn of the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through his blood on the cross. And you, who were at once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, which I, Paul, 
became a minister. I'd like to pray over you <clears throat> some of the verses Paul's prayer over the Colossian church. Just receive this, receive this, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints of the light. Amen. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. That's a prayer I like to pray over my children. Our worldly culture today is shaping our thinking every day. <clears throat> What's the importance of logos? It's really our only hope. There's no escape if you're in school or if you're circulating in the marketplace of work and ideas. From education through entertainment, our minds are being shaped by a godless pagan worldview comes from government on down. Political parties on the left have long embraced a program of indoctrination, which source comes right out of the communist playbook from the 1920s. Don't believe me? Do some research on the history of the communist party. Political parties, well, the primary tools of indoctrination are state-controlled media and education. Children are much easier to indoctrinate. The younger, the better. And once you break them in, it's easier to keep them as adults. It's right out of the Bible. Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Try to separate someone from their early habits and training. It's a battle for the next generation. It's a battle that we have to engage in. You have to go after the next generation. And if you identify with the political right, are you right? You may want to bring God back into government, but look what you're going up against. You're going up against a permanent bureaucracy, bureaucracy that is not elected. These guys are there, and they are determined to enforce their point of view that God has no place in government. <clears throat> so... You can't win where the right, left, center, you can't win if your dependency is upon government. Government is not going to do it for you. Government can force you to do things like pay your taxes at gunpoint under penalty of imprisonment, but government does not have the creative power of logos. Government, are they something if they don't have the creative power? They're nothing. The emotionally oriented person is going to lean toward um, left pol the politics from the left. It's just the way we're wired. Um, the left promotes a feeling-based approach to communicating with people. Um, they feel what is right. This is interesting. Uh, the people that are drawn to the left, they feel what is right, and they're drawn to the left. And interestingly, 
Does anybody know what um, the word in Italian or French is for our left? Sinister. Try that. <laughs> Siniestre, Italian. And those that operate on a more analytical level tend to be drawn toward the right, conservative principles and politics, and they want to stick to what works. Some brains are wired more emotionally and some brains are wired more analytically. Now, here's the fundamental problem. Is it better to be left or right? What, what is it? The fundamental problem is it has little to do with left or right politics. No matter how well you have learned to signal virtue or how well you've learned to walk according to the law, whether you rely on emotional cues or critical thinking, absent the renewing of the mind from the washing of the word, the logos, always lead to, trans, to trespass and deception. Without the renewing of the corrupted mind, corrupted by everything we've seen and heard and all our genetics for hundreds of generations, without the renewing of the mind from the washing of the word, always lead to trespass and deception. Prove me wrong on that one. How can we overcome such a plight? Lots of stopping and praying and reconnecting with the source, listening to the logos, this pre-existing line that's going on out there, which is the logos of God. There's lots of um, the renewing of the mind comes from reading the word primarily. But there are some really good Bible apps out there now uh, where you can listen to the word. Uh, for the last, I think, about three years, I've been doing more listening than reading. I'll listen and then read along, or I'll listen in English and read in Italian because I'm trying to, trying to get a better understanding. But if we don't do that, we don't have a clue. We're going to, we're always going to lean toward what's familiar. If the word, if we're familiar with the word, when something doesn't quite line up, it just doesn't sound right. It like, it, it, it gets stuck in our filter. If the filter is the word, if we don't have the word as a filter, if our mind is our filter, then whatever sounds good is going to be right. And we're going to, we're going to go after it. Psalm 4610 is our formula. Be still and know that I am God. So the formula is stop. Stop whatever you're doing and pray. Reconnect with the source. And forgive and be free. <clears throat> I recommend that everybody set up a pattern of stopping and praying and reconnecting. Set up a pattern every minute, every five minutes. I mean, for a minute, for five minutes, uh, or for 15 minutes at regular intervals throughout the day where you just stop. There's been a lot of good research done recently in the workplace on how to get better productivity. And across the board, it's found that, that if employees are take regular breaks, like a 15-minute break, several times a day or a half hour break twice a day 
And during that break, they talk nothing about business, but just socialize about non-business related things. Productivity increases significantly. We need that break. We need that breaking point. Imagine if that break involves reconnecting with the source of all things. How is that going to affect your productivity? The takeaway from a complete break is that you're reconnecting with God. You're reconnecting with the logos, the word. What do you get from that? You get his peace. And with his, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, you get the whole package, the healing, the grace, the understanding, the forgiveness. Everything dwells in God's peace. I want to do a message on God's peace. Maybe that will be the next one. I'll keep, I'll keep promising it until I do. Um, it's really good. So if you're not feeling his peace, what do you do? Stop. <laughs> Pray. Reconnect. And forgive anybody that you could blame. Forgive any situation you could blame. And who's the last person you need to forgive? Yourself. Forgive yourself for for stumbling again, for tripping and going on that path again. And be set free. I could go on, but I think we better leave it at that. To be set free. Remember... Jesus spoke that Jesus only spoke what he heard from the father I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life no one comes to the father but through me in 1st Peter 5 6 therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time be patient stop wait for him to do it in due time so it'll be done right in the process, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. <clears throat> I'd like to share a parting thought. <clears throat> Not many of us have had a really strong father figure who was everything that a father should be. So, and if you haven't had a good father figure, it can be difficult to conjure one up. But I want you to go away this week. This is an advice our pastor Jesus gave us in Austin. We had, a, we had coffee with him last week or the week before. And he gave this suggestion to me that I went away with, and I want to give that to you. Go away this week thinking about God as your father. Picture, try to imagine the ideal father, the one that would be caring for you so much more than he cares for himself, and he has the ability to care for you any way he needs to. He's the creator of all things. He is reality. He is creating power, creative power. He's the only one who can do when you can't and nobody else can Think of Jesus, Logos, Holy Spirit, our Heavenly Father, as that loving Father who wants the very best for you, and he's there to give it to you in all circumstances. He is your deliverer. He is your hope. 
He is your salvation, your provision, your peace. He is your everything. Tap into him. Um, Set aside some time every day. If you're not a reader, a lot of people are not readers today because we're orientated toward video, but we can still hear. So download one of the apps. If If you want to know about recommendations, just come ask me, and I'll give you a recommendation. But submit yourself to under the mighty hand of God and be free. That's your sign. God bless you.